An academic says climate change is no longer an appropriate term for this existential crisis. So that they're empowered to protect our ocean and the environment and yes, receive the essential training that they need. And Pacific Youth urge their governments to support more conservation research. The impact of COVID-19 in the Pacific has highlighted the interdependence of health security and health systems and the need to improve resilience. The report Health Security in the Pacific, Expert Perspectives to Guide Health System Strengthening, aims to identify and prioritise health system strengthening initiatives in the region. One of the writers, University of Sydney Associate Professor Meru Shiel, says they've identified steps that should be part of a ramping up of health support for Pacific countries. She spoke with Don Wiseman. So we're saying that we need to strengthen health systems in all of these countries to achieve better outcomes for health security. And this is because during the pandemic, these places have struggled to cope with the pandemic, as we know, and their other health services have very much gone by the wayside. Yeah, in most parts of the world, if you look at it, not just in the Pacific, most parts of the world, um, we struggle to respond to COVID-19, which is obviously a big health security threat. It's a pandemic. It's a virus that's spreading really fast. And while responding to that in many parts of the world, um, routine essential services, be it vaccination of children or be it providing um, primary care for, say, TB or HIV treatment or cancer screening, we know that routine essential services have been disrupted in most parts of the world. And workforce is another one, how healthcare workers have coped. They've been pulled out of their routine essential services to responding to COVID-19. And that's put a lot of mental health strain on the workforce. There's been quantity issues. There's been quality and skills issues that have come up. And it's also meant that services that these health workers have been serving have also been disrupted. So it's a myriad of things. And it's, I guess, through this report, we've tried to ask experts who work in the field on what the priorities would be. So we've used methodology called qualitative research for focus group discussions. And we've tried to tease out what are the immediate priorities that we've seen would benefit from strengthening and prioritization in, I guess, improving, strengthening our health system and hence improving health security outcomes. And this strengthening or this this impetus toward strengthening has to come from where? The impetus toward strengthening, of course, has to be country-led. We need to be talking about where the countries, which and the countries and the subnational context that we're working on, one size definitely doesn't fit all. Um, there's a value of targeted approaches nationally, subnationally, and there's a value of regional approaches as well. And of course, Australia and New Zealand also form part of the region. So how do we kind of look at that from a regional perspective to national um, and to subnational perspective and different ideas and will need different things. And so this, these particular reports are providing a primer to, I guess, areas and opportunities where we can go and dig deeper to see what does um, strengthening in this particular area look like. And um, surveillance systems, for example, is one of them that we kind of talk about. We talk about workforce and we're saying um, one of the key things to do immediately would be to better understand what roles workforce played in doing a workforce um, health workforce review 
it 100% needs to be country-led prioritisation, but countries like Australia and New Zealand can probably provide impetus and support in terms of strengthening that, um, both from a technical aspect to a foreign aid perspective as well. A lot of these Pacific countries are going to be scratching their head wondering how on earth they would pay for more staff, better educated staff, more hospitals or more clinics. I guess that's a discussion they have to have with their aid donors. Yes, yes. I mean, this is a this is a technical lo- report looking at what the gaps and opportunities are. It's not a solution to all those problems. So this is more from a health perspective and a technical perspective of, I guess, where the opportunities for health system strengthening are, where our initiatives can prioritize. Because if it was an endless bucket, we would strengthen all aspects of the health system, but it's not necessarily an endless bucket. Yeah. So essentially, the first step is some more extensive research. Mm -hmm. And identifying what the local needs might be in that setting. So this is, we're looking at what the public health needs are. How can we improve better surveillance? Um, How can we improve health security outcomes? How can we um, detect diseases better? And we know some of those things involve better resourcing for, say, how do we enable decision-making from the surveillance data that is coming in? And how do we ensure better quality data that is coming in? Now, some of that includes digital tools. Some of that includes workforce training. Some of that includes ability to make decisions in a timely manner from I guess decision makers and then it involves this idea called feedback loops so going back into the community and making sure it leads to a public health response because that's what surveillance does so it depends on the context that we're talking about and what the question we might be asking but there are some nuanced strategies in the report that you will see where we're saying these things work and these things don't work and some good examples of where we know things work. A professor of Pacific Studies says the term climate change is no longer relevant or appropriate to describe what is an existential crisis. Stephen Ratuva is the co-lead for a New Zealand government-supported research project, Protect Pacific. Professor Ratuva says the increase in the frequency and severity of natural disasters fueled by global warming warrants the use of new terminology to better reflect the dire straits we are in. Dr. Ratuva told RNZ Pacific reporter Susanna Suisuiki that calling the situation a climate crisis is more fitting. The term climate change has been around for some time. People have been using it over and over again. Uh, Now it's seen as something which is very routinized, something which actually has no meaning whatsoever, particularly in the the context of the dramatic changes in the climate system. Uh, Of course, climate changes anyway, uh, whether, you know, it's naturally uh, induced or induced by human activities. Uh, So uh, the situation now is that it's not just changing. It's not just that climate is changing, but we are reaching a level of uh, of a crisis. The increasing number of uh, uh, Category 5 cyclones, the droughts, the erosion, the heating of the ocean, and uh, coral reefs dying in the Pacific, and the impact on uh, people's lives. All these things are happening at a very, very fast pace. So the word climate change does not address the dramatic changes taking place. So we need another new way of framing it. So the term climate crisis is being used now because we are right in the middle of a crisis anyway. One of the issues arising out of this particular project is the way in which the Pacific people themselves can participate. Often the way in which the climate crisis is being researched, written about in the Pacific, for the Pacific, is by external scholars, external experts. Uh, this is a chance for 
climate crisis in the Pacific being researched and being written by Pacific uh, experts themselves. Uh, we note that the IPCC report, there was very little there on the Pacific contribution, partly because the IPCC report is largely, largely driven by the global North, European and North American scholars. And uh, the voices of the global South, particularly the Pacific, is very minimal. So this is a great opportunity to be able to consolidate that voice through research and have something which is uh, evidence-based, uh, which can then fit into the future IPCC and other global uh, scientific uh, literature. So, uh, and also, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good way of making sure that we fit directly into the policy-making process in the Pacific. Often, the Pacific climate policies are driven by the international narratives from the United Nations, from the various aid donors. So it's important that uh, the evidence should be generated within the Pacific using our own uh, expertise. So it's a way of uh, addressing the issue of inequity of knowledge, of empowerment of the Pacific people to be able to determine their own responses using the knowledge which they generate themselves. Why has it taken so long for a Pacific-led um, project to come about? Why has it taken so long for something like this to happen? Uh, because uh, in the Pacific, since independence, the pattern of economic development, the pattern of uh, governance, the pattern of, uh, of doing things has always been reliance on aid donors. And the aid donors they define for us what has to be done with their money, what has to be done with things that we do. So uh, at some point, our sense of sovereignty and independence should be expressed much more strongly in the way in which we think about and do things ourselves. So, uh, yeah, so even at the level of uh, knowledge systems, we still have to rely on the, uh, the knowledge systems and the scientific ideas coming out of uh, either New Zealand, Australia, or Britain, or the United States. Uh, and of course, uh, over the years, we tend to look down on our own expertise. So those things has, have, have to change in a significant way. So this is a way of uh, doing that as well. Pacific youth leaders are calling on their governments to do more environmental research and support grassroots conservation efforts in the region. At last month's Our Ocean Conference in Palau, young people from around the world were able to share their concerns about the climate crisis on the international stage. Mwiratulai Patela covered the conference and caught up with the youth delegates. Maisie Luce is the Managing Director of the Fish Reef Project in Papua New Guinea. She was a Pacific Youth Delegate at the Our Ocean Conference in Palau last month. In 2020, she successfully implemented her vision to see ocean life thrive in her country through the creation and placement of man-made reef units. She says PNG needs more scientific research on a number of issues, including the environmental impacts of off offshore mining and deep sea exploration by foreign companies. That's the main issue concerning oceans in our country right now at the government level when they're dealing with companies such as uh, offshore sea, deep sea mining companies. So they really want to know the environmental impacts it's going to have in our ocean. Maisie Lu says environmental changes such as ocean acidification and rising sea levels are also issues of concern in PNG. She works with young people who have the passion and vision to carry out environmental projects, but she says there's not a lot of support from government. Helping my youths back at home as well to benefit from this, yeah, so that 
they're empowered to protect our ocean and the environment and yes, receive the central training that they need. Cook Islander Anthony Vavia from Mitiaro was another Pacific Youth Delegate at the conference. He's a PhD candidate at AUT and is exploring how to ensure the long-term sustainability of coral reef fisheries in the Cook Islands by doing a case study on the island of Mitiaro. He sees indigenous knowledge as a solid baseline for exploring other areas. It provides uh, a foundation of knowledge that Scientists can come and say, hey, um, we've identified through your knowledge that this is something important to you. Help us help you develop ways to improve this for the well-being for you, your family, your village, your community, your, your nation. Anthony Vavia says he would also like to hear more solutions-based discussions at such conferences. Talking about examples that work. Um, making suggestions that might not work. The Maldives is an independent country in the north-central Indian Ocean. Experts say its islands could be 80% uninhabitable by 2050 at current global warming rates. Aishith Vasana represented the Maldives at the recent Our Ocean Conference in Palau. She says that sea level rise is a serious threat to her nation. People think about the climate change, they think about Kiribati, Tuvalu, but Maldives is also one of the lowest lying countries in the world and it is sinking. So yeah, it's a similar issue that we share and we must fight together to find solutions. She said speaking to locals in Palau highlighted for her the strong connection Indigenous people have with the ocean. That love for the ocean is what drives them to protect it and I would like for others, other countries to have a similar kind of mindset and actually start protecting it. You can see when you drive around Palau how much of it is actually protected. Over 500 delegates from more than 80 nations attended the two-day Our Ocean Conference in Palau. It was the first time the global meeting had ever been held in the Pacific. During the conference, countries pledged more than 16 billion US dollars to help shore up ocean conservation and sustainable fishing. Cook Islands filmmakers Tiana Haxton and Byron Brown are dedicating their documentary project on the saving of an endemic native bird species, Te Tauranga o Te Kakerori, to the memory of Joseph Bryder, a champion of conservation in the Cook Islands whose sudden passing at the weekend rocked the community in Rarotonga. Bryder, who was the director of the Cook Islands Natural Heritage Trust, is described as having had a wealth of knowledge and a real passion for the environment and his death is seen as a huge loss to the country. Kiorana and welcome on Pacific Waves, Tiana and Baran. My condolences for your loss. Tell us a bit more about this great man and your involvement with him in your own journey, documenting the successful conservation project for the native bird, the Kakerori. We unanimously decided to dedicate our entire project to Joe Bryder, Joseph Bryder, um, he just passed away over the weekend, so it's been you know, quite quite a shock to the whole country, really. But, um, yeah, he's been an integral part of this project. Uh, he, he's been helping us out so much, so, you know, it's only the right thing to do, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, since we've started the documentary, he's, uh, you know, every time 
fast for me for some guidance or help. He's always been there and taken us up to the TCA as well, um, help us shoot some stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's really tragic loss of the Cook Islands. Um, I think everybody here in Rarotonga was a bit shocked um, that he's passed away uh, so suddenly. Uh, he's so young as well. And, um, yeah, he's going to be sorely missed by, by everybody here. Tell us a bit now about the, the bird itself and what are the issues facing or the challenges that it's facing? So, yeah, back in the 1990s, uh, um, the actual bird was down to about uh, 29 in the remaining wild. So um, from that, um, Ed Saul was one of the people and they kind of set up this um, conservation area for where the bird was found. So um, so they they set up um, a rat baiting conservation project in the Takatumu conservation area to help protect the birds. So the population went right down um, because of the, the rats were eating the, um, the chicks, the nests and stuff like that. So there wasn't any control back in the day. So, um, so these guys um, that have been, you know, doing this project for, you know, 30 years now um, have seen numbers gone up over 600 and they've introduced the, the kakarori into another island, which is uh, Achu to kind of um, guarantee its survival in case there was a big massive cyclone that hit either island that um, that can ensure the population would continue. So you want to touch on that as well? Yeah, because um, it is important to note that, you know, the kakirori is only found in the Cook Islands. It's the only place in the world that you'll find this bird. It's endemic to Rarotonga. So, um, yeah, it's a cute little bird. But, yeah, so the kainuku karika and Manavaroa families, these are traditional landowning families, those three families got together and put together the Takitumu Conservation Area. So the land, you know, the valleys, the mountains that these birds reside in, the families came together. I was like, oh, yeah, this whole area, you can reserve it all off. And they had volunteers after volunteers, local and visitors, come to help with the tagging of the birds. So they do little plastic-coloured bands on the leg so they can um, you know keep a record of them when doing the census uh, taking DNA so they can um, you know get a better more accurate record of the birds and um, doing the rat baiting uh, during the nesting and mating period so it was a huge effort and um, it's, it's definitely paid off since um, as Byron said now there's you know about 600 estimated the next census is supposed to be happening this month We've got a guy coming up from New Zealand to kick that off. Sounds like a, a really huge success story. And in terms of your project, how, how far along is that in terms of your your production, and and where are you, will you where will you be showing it that people can do? Oh, well, um, going into put like you know, putting together a documentary about a bird, it did come with its challenges and all that. Like you don't exactly just expect to go up and a million birds are going to swoop down and you can shoot them all. So shooting has been taking quite a while. It's on the other side of the island. So getting there and getting up there is quite difficult as well. So we spend um, pretty much most of our Saturday afternoons up in the conservation area, just just constantly shooting. So I've got literal days worth of footage. Um, we've been rolling out short little videos here and there to kind of try to gain traction and, you know, get little snippets out there on the news as well. Uh, we've finally completed the trailer and um, the aim at this stage, uh, we're aiming to have this documentary out by the end of July this year to show the, the Rarotonga side of things. 
and then potentially uh, do one about the Achu side of things as well. So yeah, so we've still got to shoot some of the base interviews really. And um, when Hugh comes over to do the census, get some some shots of, of that going on as well. That's like the one aspect we don't really have covered yet. It was supposed to have happened uh, last year, but thanks to COVID, uh, the borders got shut down and everything. So we weren't too sure if we'd be able to get that aspect included at all. But now that it's, you know, open, we're going to have that part happen. So, yeah, we've got a little bit more shooting left to do, but we're pretty much in the editing stages now. And and what is what is the aim for the documentary? What would you like it to achieve? Uh, for me, the whole thing really was, um, I guess, yeah, rewinding back to the beginning going up there for the first time and learning about the kakirori for the first time and all the work that goes on, you don't really hear about that. Like, I didn't know any of this was still going on. I didn't realise that um, the birds were still at risk to a certain degree. So we really wanted it to be, uh, you know, educational in a way and also to get more awareness out there and, you know, show people what's really going on out there and acknowledge all the people past and present that have been a part of this, you know, this really important project. Uh, yeah, so I think it's, um, you know, Cook Islands, you, you probably don't hear much about any kind of um, documentaries made about any specific animals here. So it's a great way, like Tiana said, is to try to acknowledge the past of, of who the people are involved to get the, the numbers back up and just um, acknowledge the efforts of those people um, because it is a great success, conservation success story. And not many people know the history behind it um, can get skewed in some ways in the past, so people's recollections. So it's great that, you know, we, we're doing this piece just to show that, you know, things can change if you if you guys put the effort into it. And um, these guys have really done an amazing job from, you know, a bird that's almost extinct um, to where it is, where it's, uh, you know, healthy numbers now. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Mo de mandao.